John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is God's word. All right. Thank you, Vi. If you guys would pray with me before we get started. Heavenly Father, we are grateful to be able to be here today. I think we are, uh, yeah, our hearts are just curious, Lord, what you have. And as we consider this idea of encounter, as we look to this story from John the Baptist, we think to ourselves, what does it look like to encounter you? What does it look like to prepare ourselves to encounter you? I pray that that's the question that we ask and that by the end of my talk, we would have a reasonable answer for us. Lord, as we think back to the painting that Andy showed all of us, and we reflect on the kind of world that many of us just have to inherit, a world that's not always fair, a world where animals can roam more freely than human beings. Lord, I think that as we even think of what it means to encounter you, we also have to acknowledge what it is to encounter the world around us, the world that we've inherited and it's so much worse <laughs> than what it is to encounter you. So I pray that at the end of our message tonight that you would make it clear that you are offering through your encounter something freeing and something liberating, something healing, and something good. Amen. My message for tonight is called... Are you ready to encounter Jesus? We uh, decided to name this uh, series that we're working on that we're going to be going through for the better part of 2024, Encountering God or Encountering Jesus. And I wonder if when we first announced this title for the series, that some of us, because I know that for me it did, tensed up a little bit because we think to ourselves, ooh, encountering Jesus, encountering God. I don't know if I'm still doing that too often these days. And I've been a believer for a long time, but maybe that whole encounter muscle has gotten a little weak for us. And so it's, it's perfect and it's timely to find ourselves in this passage of Mark I apologize to those of you guys who were following Luke earlier. I think that was definitely my typo. Mike, I'm sorry. Wherever you are, I'm sorry. Um, finding ourselves in this passage where John the Baptist is asking the exact same question to people who were not going to experience Jesus in the way that we are today, but who were going to experience Jesus face to face. They were going to see him. 
They were going to hear his voice. They were going to talk to him. And John the Baptist, who looks like every one of the prophets from the Old Testament, were like thrown into a blender and mixed into one and just came out this crazy, you know, fuzzy-haired, locust-eating psycho just coming out of the wilderness, just eyes bewildered, like, make straight the way of the Lord. Jesus is coming. But he wasn't a crazed prophet. He was a man ordained by God with a message that needed, needed to be proclaimed. A question that needed to be asked. Are you ready to encounter Jesus? I also just have to admit, I love that title because it, it kind of reminds me of those old hokey revivals that used to happen all throughout like the 50s when dudes would travel in these enormous tents and you've got these like southern twang accent preachers who were running around the stage just like soaked in sweat, like always perpetually sweaty these pastors were as they were asking questions like, are you ready for Jesus? And that's John's role right here. I'm not speaking of myself in the third person. That's John the Baptist's role here. As I mentioned earlier, John is a prophet, and there's lots of prophets in the story of God's people, and they play a very important role. They're the messengers that God is using to call Israel to turn from their sins and to look back to God as they particularly wait for something. More specifically, they wait for someone. So all of the prophets that we see in the Old Testament from uh, Micah and Daniel and Isaiah and Jeremiah, all of these crazed, bewildered uh, preachers telling the people of Israel, make straight the way of the Lord. Of all of those, John is the final who plays that specific role. But he's got, as you could say, a little bit more of a pep in his step. Because the man that he's talking about, this rescuer that the people of Israel have been taught to wait for, for literally centuries, for hundreds and hundreds of years, he's on his way. And he's not on his way like, you know, he's, he's about to be getting ready to be on his way in a few moments, which means that, you know, you've got to consider traffic and commute. Like, no, he's on his way. Like, he's, he's at 22nd and Country Club. He's about to turn left. He's, he's pulling into the parking lot soon. Jesus is coming. Please be ready. This is important. This is the message of John. And so the question people are asking themselves, the question that John is frantically asking these people in Jerusalem and Judea is, guys, are you ready to encounter the rescuer, the redeemer, the, the, the promised one, the king? Now, you might hear this and say, well, John, that's, this, this isn't exactly accurate for me because, you know, I'm a Christian and I've been a Christian for a really long time, since I was eight and a half, actually. And I'll, I'll say, I, I've, uh, I encounter Jesus every day. In fact, I encounter Jesus every minute of every day. So you asking me, am I ready to encounter Jesus? That's a silly question, John. And I've, yeah. And I would agree. If we believe in Jesus, we do have the promise that Jesus is not forsaking us. He's not leaving us. He's not departing from us. 
But I also think if we're being honest with ourselves that when we think of encountering Jesus as Christians, it's not so much an encounter as much as we're driving the car and Jesus is sitting in the back seat. Like imagine if I went to a restaurant, let's say Sace, because I got a couple extra dollars in my pocket. And I... Uh, and it's a couple of weeks ago, and I'm, I'm chatting with uh, Cruz here, and Cruz says, oh, dude, I was actually there at the exact same time and day that you were at SACE. That's crazy. And I'm like, that's crazy. Look at that. But we didn't have dinner together. We didn't experience each other. We didn't talk with each other. We didn't share our lives with each other. We were just in the same place at the same time. And sometimes I... Wonder if when we as Christians think about encountering Jesus, are we actually encountering him or are we just in the same place at the same time? He's here, but we're not really encountering him. So the question we have to ask and the question that hopefully we can get from this story is, well, what are we supposed to do? Well, if we look at our passage tonight, it says that John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, if you guys are kind of familiar with the Bible, you've got to think, where did baptism come from? It's a very fair question. Baptism doesn't exist at all in the Old Testament, and then it just kind of pops up randomly in the New. So a little bit of history. Baptism was essentially used as a conversion tool in the few hundred years of history that existed between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New. There was still a lot of interaction between the nation of Israel and Gentile nations. Gentile just means not Jewish. And if a Gentile wanted to become Jewish and wanted to experience that religion, they would baptize that person and circumcised, because I did think that maybe the baptism was kind of a replacement. You have to do both. Very unfortunate. But the significance of baptism was meant to reflect back on one of the core stories of Israel that I'm sure many of you guys are familiar with, which is the Exodus story. God has this incredible, miraculous interaction with Israel, who at the time is enslaved to Egypt, and in this incredible miracle, God brings them through the Red Sea. He literally lifts up the, like practically rolls out the red carpet, lifts up the water so they can walk through it and they come out dry. They come out free. And so when new converts were baptized, the significance of the water was to remind them this is where we come from. This is the God that we serve. We serve a God who is rescuing us, who has rescued us in the past, and who will again rescue us in the future. So again, when we look at what John is suggesting people do to be prepared for the encounter of God, it's baptism and these ideas of confession and repentance. 
Now, I feel like it's worthwhile to spend a little bit of time on this idea of repentance because I don't know about you guys, but when I hear repent, it just kind of makes my, my skin crawl a little bit. Not because I'm, I'm not a fan of repenting, but because I feel like the language of it is so like cold and religious. And when I hear the word repent, I just think of dudes wearing those giant like sandwich board signs that, you know, say all these inflammatory things about this person going to hell and that person going to hell and yelling on megaphones and calling people all kinds of names. And so there can kind of be this stuffy, self-righteous feeling when we think about what repentance is. My argument is that I think repentance is actually a very natural, even human idea. Because I think that we universally recognize that repentance is necessary for relational healing. I'll, I'll give you guys an example. Imagine someone, a good close friend comes to you and says, uh, let's say it's Cruz again, because I accused Cruz a little earlier. Cruz comes to me and he's like, dude, I, uh, I need some advice. I've got, I'm having this conflict with a buddy of mine. It's just really, really challenging. And I'm like, yeah, man, I'm happy to hear it. What's going on? And Cruz tells me this story, and, and throughout the story, Cruz is in t just continually coming across as this very abusive and manipulative person, just harsh and unkind and unloving. Right, Cruz? Yeah. <laughs> At a certain point, like, he's, he's asking me for advice. My thought process is going to be, well, bro, you, you, you got to recognize what you're doing, and you have to stop it. Like, even outside of a completely religious context, there's still this idea that I'm telling someone, you're doing something wrong, you need to stop doing that thing. Or even if we, if we zoom out from a very, like, from, from an individual relationship like this, if you were to look at a nation, like an entire country, where it wasn't single individuals who were being oppressed and mistreated and stepped on, but entire groups, ethnicities, nationalities, races. And we've got MLK Day tomorrow. There's clearly things that we can remember in our own country's history of the ways that we've treated and mis specifically mistreated races, minorities, vulnerable groups. When we think of these things, we think to ourselves, this, this is wrong. The, the thing that is happening that is so atrocious, it needs to be stopped. And it needs, to be, it needs to be fixed. This is wrong. So again, even outside of this religious lens, we can see that repentance is the way that healing is supposed to come. And so then we read this passage and we ask ourselves this question. Okay, okay, where, where am I at? What, what do I need to do to encounter Jesus I need to repent. I need to repent of my sins. Okay, I think I can do that. And once I do that, once I, once I go through my life with a very fine-toothed comb and I pick out all of my sins and all of my errors, then I'm going to commit myself to fixing every single one. And then when I do that, Jesus will look at me and say, Ah, my son, Turns out that doesn't work. See, what's, what's interesting is that we just talked about how this idea of repentance and healing relationships and, and righting wrongs, it's actually kind of intrinsic to us as human beings. 
So if one of you guys was, it was a foreign alien from Saturn, you'd probably think, wow, the human race must be the most peace-loving, like, species in, in the whole universe. They must hate war and conflict because all of them deep down know that what's wrong needs to be corrected. And all of them know that when something is bad, it should be steered into something better. Humans must be amazing. And I think we all know that that's not true. The history of humanity is full of everything I just said, plus a billion worse things that I couldn't mention. It turns out that we've got just enough spark of God in our hearts to recognize how good repentance is, but our arms are far too short to actually achieve it. And so if we look at this story and we look at this idea that, that Jesus is coming, I, I want to encounter Jesus. What do I have to do? How, how, how can I have this experience with Jesus in my life? If our first thought is, well, let me dig up all of those dead sins and just take care of them. You're, you're, you're going to fall short, terribly short. See, what we need is perfect repentance, but also what we can't achieve is perfect repentance. We can't do it alone. And so I would say that when we look at this story and when we think of our lives, what we need to do to experience and to encounter Jesus is actually to humble ourselves. Imagine you're trying to invite Jesus over as a house guest. He doesn't need your house to be spotless. He doesn't need your kitchen to shine like crystal. He just needs the door unlocked and the welcome mat outside and, and maybe a drink because I'm sure he'll be around for a while. He just needs to come in. That's where the healing starts. See, I, I think the reason that we often fail, I think the reason our whole world fails this, this internal mission of repentance is because we think that healing takes place outside of the healer. And it doesn't. If we remember Andy's definition of repentance last week, it's not just saying, okay, uh, I, I do this bad thing a lot and I'm going to stop doing it. That's not what repentance is. Repentance is actually, when you even get back down to the, to the root of the word, it's a turning around. It's a fixing your eyes on something different. It is a change of the mind. It's not a stop sign. It's a U-turn sign. It's about finding a different direction, a different thing to place your focus and your mind and your, even your affections on. Which means that the action of turning away is actually just as important as the object of what you are now putting your focus on, which is to say that it's not just about stopping. It's about looking to Jesus who gives you the ability and the desire to do so, which is why repentance is a lifelong thing. It's not just a thing that we knock out in one go when we, you know, pray to Jesus that one time and then we're just sparkly clean forever. We're constantly having to re-U-turn, re-look in a different direction, replace our eyes back on Jesus again. And it's something that we can't do alone. We do need help. 
What Jesus wants from his people is simply for us to humble ourselves. And again, if, we, if we're practicing Christians, if we're professing Christians right now, I don't think we should act like this is no longer relevant to us because there's ways in which God calls us to encounter him that are all over the, just the day-to-day of our lives. We shouldn't be encountering Jesus through the times that we pray, through the times that we're reading the Bible. We can encounter Jesus when we're washing the dishes in our homes, when we're just driving to work. There's all of these things and there's all these areas of life where Jesus is presenting himself and saying, I want to spend this time with you. But in order to do that, we have to humble ourselves first. And I'll say too, there is a tremendous amount of power in being able to confess, to being able to take those things that we struggle with, even if we struggle with all of our might and power and intensity and saying, God, I'm still just really wrestling with this. And I hate to say it, sometimes having that and humility in confessing our struggles leads us into places that we may not actually want to go. I, uh, I had a conversation the other day. So I've, I've told you guys about this a few times before, but I, I spent about six months living in Israel when I had just gotten out of uh, my, for my, when I finished studying at the U of A when I was like 22. And so the, the way it worked was you're living in this very small community. They kind of invite Christians from all over the world to come and to, to work for them and, to, and they'll provide food and lodging and all that. So I get to spend like six months living with Christians from like South America and Asia and all parts of the world. And it's just this like amazing experience. And so when I got there, I felt like the thing that I needed to do to, uh, to really serve the community was to start a Bible study. And I would say like my intentions were mostly pretty good. Um, so I did my first Bible study and it was like every volunteer came, people were just like really hungry for it. And it was amazing. We're like praying in different languages. We're reading from the word. And I, and at this point in time, I think very highly of myself as a teacher of the word. I'm just like, I know what this stuff means. I got this. And so I, I'm preparing these, like, I would never call them sermons at the time, but I was 100% preaching sermons to all of these people who did not know me hardly at all. And to my dismay, the second week was about half the size of the first week. By the fourth week, it was probably about a quarter. And just week by week, it just got smaller and smaller until literally there were times when I would cancel Bible study because I knew that nobody was going to be there anyways. And I just like had plenty of wounds to lick there. It was a bummer. And as I was reflecting on it a while ago, I thought to myself, you know, Maybe the reason people didn't show up to these Bible studies wasn't because these Christians all hated studying the Bible. It might have been because maybe I was doing something that they weren't interested in. Maybe I was teaching lessons that didn't actually connect to them at all. Maybe I was even making it a little bit more about myself than it was about the other people there. And so I kind of think, ah, oh, man, that's kind of a rough thing to think. I kind of thought really highly of myself doing that Bible study, but, you know, that's kind of a tough pill to swallow. 
And so then I, I have a conversation with a buddy of mine, buddy I haven't talked to literally since we lived in Israel together. This was just yesterday. And I kind of said, yeah, man, I remember those Bible studies I used to do. I, uh, you know, I think I realized that maybe I wasn't really connecting with people very well. And he said, you know, he's finished, dude, so they're, they're going to speak as bluntly as possible. He's like, yeah, I mean, we kind of just assumed you were doing it just, uh, just to show off because you wanted to be a pastor. And I was just like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> it was just like this knife, like right in between the ribs. And I was like, okay, I didn't say that, man. Gosh, dang it. Um, so I had this moment, right? I had this moment of, okay, I, I, I am hearing something that is very, very challenging to me. I've mentioned this before. I'll probably mention it again. Like there was a time early on when I was first getting into ministry when I really felt like teaching was the thing that really stamped my call in like in concrete. So for someone to say that for six months, I had this completely ineffective Bible study, but not only because I wasn't connecting with people, but because I was putting myself first, that was not something I wanted to readily accept as true. And for a while, I could kind of feel those defenses come up like, ah, Jacob doesn't know what he's talking about. Ah, he's just being a finished jerk, whatever. I'm not going to listen to this. But as I took some time, I thought, no. This is okay. I can accept this. I can realize that I failed in this area of my life that's extremely important to me. That doesn't mean I have to take any further steps down this staircase that leads into despair and all these other kinds of things. I can just say, okay, this is true. I dropped the ball. I was selfish. It doesn't mean anything about me today. It's something that I can grow through and I continue to grow through. But I had to really surgically, carefully accept this confession of sin, of like, I did do wrong, and I'm hearing this, and I'm understanding this. And I have to be very careful, because I don't know about you guys, but shame comes very quickly in moments like that. It's very easy to take one step down the staircase, and, you know, it's covered in wax, and you slip, and you fall down to the bottom, Because I do think that that's something that, for me, as I just explained in my story, but all of us, there is something that happens when you self-reflect or when you humble yourself that can be or feel dangerous. It is like taking a step down, you know, a slippery staircase. You don't know if you're actually going to be able to stop right there or if you're going to keep sliding down. And confession can become this overwhelming vacuum of, well, if this is true, then what else is true? And then you're spiraling downward. And that's when, you know, anxiety and depression and all those things are just going off like fireworks inside of you. And all of a sudden you're like, who is God? Who am I? What is life? What's going on here? It can be hard to... Take that one step knowing that you don't know how long you'll go until you find yourself in this void or this dark night. It can be hard to hear something like, confess your sins, John, when you're living in the great void. It's even harder to think something has to change. I need to repent when you're in the dark void. 
And so what we do is we build these walls and we protect ourselves and we don't listen to anything. And anytime something, some kind of criticism or some unhealthy or fearful feedback gets over, we, we sick the Dobermans on them and we don't let it get anywhere close to where we're sensitive. We just kill anything that threatens us and our hearts and our well-being. So let's think back to our pal John the Baptist now. Let's go back into his world. You know, before this moment where he, when he's on the river banks of the Jordan River, I imagine a moment that probably didn't happen, but in my imagination it did, where he's, he's standing out and he's looking at Judea and Jerusalem in a moment that would foreshadow Jesus, and he's looking at all these people, and he's just bawling his eyes out, and he looks up at heaven, and he's like, God, these people aren't even close to ready. They're not even close to ready to see Jesus yet. And so he posts up at the riverbank of the Jordan and he makes this big sign that says free baptisms, come confess your sins. And people come to him and say, I I don't know what your sign means. And he's like, well, if you're willing to acknowledge at this moment that your life isn't quite what it should be, if you're willing to acknowledge at this moment that you're not the person that you should be, that throughout your life you've been a victim of sin and that's rough. Throughout your life you've been a perpetrator of sin too and that's also rough. And there is a rescuer coming for you soon. In fact, he's at 22nd and Country Club. He'll be here really soon. If you can say those things, I imagine John the Baptist saying to this random Jewish person, if you can say these things, then you can step into the water. If you can say these things, then Jesus can call you beloved. If you can say these things, then the one who made you will remake you. You just have to humble yourself. Just keep the front door open. Because in the stories that we see and that we'll dive into throughout this gospel, throughout the book of Mark, we see that Jesus has kind of two different interactions with the people he's talking to. His interactions with the proud, who don't come across as proud right away, in his interactions with the humble. When he speaks to the humble, he reflects just this deep, warm, like blazing star of love and rescue and comfort and care. And when he speaks to the prideful, he doesn't say, jump in that pile of burning trash. He actually says, I'm noticing something between you and me right now. I'm going to need you to humble yourself, and then we can chat. He's not throwing them into the fire bin. He's actually saying, I'd really love it if you could handle this first. Because I'd really love to get to talk to you more. And so we ask ourselves, what do I have to do to encounter Jesus? You can repent perfectly of your sins, but you're not going to. 
you could ascend through the stars, through the galaxies and meet Jesus face to face. You're not going to. You could, I don't know, invent some incredible device that bridges the gap between our material world and the spiritual one and you can schedule a coffee date with him. You're not going to. If you want to have an encounter with Jesus, humble yourself. If you want to have an encounter with Jesus, humble yourself. And I would encourage you to start today. In fact, I would encourage you to start momentarily. Because for hundreds of years, Christians would gather on the Lord's Day and they would sing songs and they would listen to the word being proclaimed and they would do what they believed was the closest thing they could do to having a face-to-face encounter with Jesus. And it's that right there. And what do we do before we go to the Lord's table but take that two minutes of silence to humble ourselves? Not to humble ourselves into a place of shame and despair and depression and, and letting all the enemy's arrows just completely decimate us. That's the opposite of what we should be doing. That little bit of humility that says, God, I need you. Every hour I need you. Please be near me. I need you today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I, uh, I thank you for stabbing me under my ribs through that harmful finish man yesterday. And I thank you for just all the many ways that you've helped me to humble myself because humility is not us lowering ourselves. I think it's really just understanding where we truly stand. And uh, we need you, Lord. So wherever our hearts are, despite whatever defenses we've built up, would you please just meet us where we need you the most, right, right in the holy of holies of our own hearts, just the innermost being, would you meet us there? Lord, have mercy on us. We need you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.